John Krasinski, a Newton native who became well-known through his role on the TV comedy The Office, was the hands-down winner of the early COVID season with a simple series of short videos that were called Some Good News. Anybody watch those as they showed up on YouTube and a number of other places? Krasinski saw how fear and discouragement filled the air as the COVID restrictions hit and were constantly revised, and he sensed internally that he had to do something. So he self-financed and filmed Some Good News each week on a very low budget from his home office. And it was delivered free for all on YouTube. The first episode showed up on March 29, 2020. And as promised, the content was totally focused on delivering stories of good news. Some of them were corny. Some of them were funny. Some were just feel-good stories of people who were reaching out on their own, trying to do something good that lifted the spirits of someone else. Soon, celebrity guests were signing up to join him. They wanted to get in on this good news. They did simple spots like describing the weather outside where they live. It looks warm today, and then they'd, they'd be done with that piece. Lin-Manuel Miranda and the original cast of Hamilton wanted in. Steve Carell and eventually the entire former cast from the, from the office uh, through a wedding uh, celebration for a couple whose wedding plans had been canceled. On one early episode, David Ortiz from the Red Sox appeared to give five different healthcare workers from Beth Israel New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston a tour of Fenway Park. And then when they were there at the park, they were presented with lifetime season pass tickets to the Boston Red Sox. Can you imagine that? Lifetime season tickets. Soon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, the Jonas Brothers, Zach Brown, Justin Timber Timberlake, three NASA astronauts, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, among others, showed up to take part in spreading simple, humorous, and sometimes tear-jerking stories of good news. Some Good News was so quickly and wildly successful that after merely eight episodes, Krasinski sold the rights to his show to Viacom CBS after an all-out bidding war took place between the networks, which allowed the show to be more widely distributed after that opening period. Who knew that good news could spread so quickly? Who knew that everyone would want to get in on such good news? And here's the most important thing that I will have said thus far. And it is possible that John Krasinski, a locally bred herald of uplifting good news, has reminded me and us as the church of something that we know so well. Our world needs and loves good news, especially in times of trouble. And we should be fearlessly and relentlessly focused on spreading the good news, the best news in all of its forms, all of the good news that God has for his people and for the world. Done right, our world loves and needs both good news and just plain goodness. Now here's why I brought all of that up this morning. Understanding and committing ourselves to being heralds of the goodness of God and of the good news of God is absolutely essential for anyone who would become a resilient Christian in our day. I am convinced that there is one overarching goal that we must pursue together this year, how to become resilient Christians. And so here we are in week four of this series that we're calling Resilient. The subtitle is Building a Faith that Lasts Through Chaos and Change. In this series, we have been asking this question, what building blocks go into the long-term development of a resilient faith? 
So far, we've talked about three factors. We talked about the power of faith on week one. Christy talked about developing grit, the courage, resolve, and determination to keep pushing forward despite difficulties and resistance. And then last week, we talked about practicing contentment. And now in part four, we're going to talk about goodness, something that I am calling the way of tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good or goodness. Would you say that with me? Tov. It's the back half of what you hear when a, when a Jewish friend says, Mazel Tov. The last part of that is that word Tov for good. Years ago, I had a friend named Tovia. His name literally means the Lord is good in Hebrew. So we're going to talk about the way of goodness or the way of Tov. Let me stop and say good morning, North River friends, both here in Pembroke and around the South Shore or wherever you are watching from this morning. I want to warmly welcome you. But I also don't want to take too much time with this because we're literally about to get into the good stuff. And I don't want to keep you waiting. But if you find this helpful to your faith development, please tell a friend. Invite a friend to watch with you or to come with you, whatever you're comfortable doing. And then get a cup of coffee together and, and take a walk outside together and talk about the good stuff that we're going to focus on right now. A few moments ago, we sang one of our opening songs which had this line in it, I will sing of the goodness of God. And I have a question for you. Why don't we talk about goodness very much anymore? I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we have a problem with goodness, especially in the church. And let me walk you through how, how I'm looking at that, that concept, our problem with goodness. The first is that the Bible starts with God telling us about how good things are in the creative process. Genesis 1-4 says God saw that the light that he had created was good. And that begins a sequence of seven times in the creation process in the opening chapter of the Bible where God announces this is good. So light is good. The land and the sea are good. The plant life is good. The sun and the stars and the separation of night from, from, uh, from day is good. Creation of the birds in the air and the sea creatures are all good. Animal life is good. And then God creates human life and pronounces human life as very good. The first time we see something as not being good is when the first human being is found in isolation. Adam is alone. And this is dramatic writing intended for oral transmission. But when God announces that it is not good for man to be alone, he affirmed that we are relational beings. He was saying that isolation and loneliness are not good. It's not what we were designed for. Then God creates Eve from a DNA-rich rib from Adam's body. And when he sees her, Adam mirrors the affirmations of God in effect, he's saying, whoa, how did you know she moves me right down to my bones? She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a poetic way of, of Adam mirroring the this is good statements from God. So the Bible starts with several pronouncements that creation, life, and people are good. Second, then the Bible records a whole lot of bad stuff in life. Adam and Eve mess things up by rejecting the source of all goodness in favor of something that is merely enticing. The tempter comes and God doesn't restrict them from considering temptations, but the tempter sows doubts about God's goodness, feeds them a series of half-truths, 
And the desire for immediate gratification kicks in. So they look to the next generation to solve things. But the next generation committed the first murder. And the generations after that turned farther from God, farther from the goodness of the Garden of Eden, until God in his justice brought his slow judgment upon the people of the earth and then started over with one family, the family of Noah that escaped the flood. What follows from that point on is a biblical history filled with good and bad actors, people who are capable of so much good, yet who often settle for so much less. And spiritual wandering and rebellion leads them farther and farther from Eden's ideal. That's the Old Testament in four minutes. And then the New Testament writers remind us that no one is good in and of themselves. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.12, all have turned away, there is no one who does good, not even one. Now when the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 3, he was quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm 14. He was not making this up, he was confirming what King David had, had observed a thousand years earlier. He's not saying that human beings are incapable of doing good things at all. He's not saying that there's nothing good left in this world, but he was saying that our sin problem is so thoroughly corrupting that we are incapable of contributing anything to our own salvation. We can't get ourselves out of the problem, out of the trap, out of the hole. Paul concludes that our sin problem is so deep that no good act can erase it. And often the good things we do are even tainted by our self-serving motives. Now, this is bedrock New Testament theology. I both accept this and believe it. Most Protestant theology since the time of the Reformation makes this the starting point of the gospel. So we start the good news, in a sense, with the bad news. And some make this bad news point so strongly that we leave out any mention of goodness in the very good news that we are to build our faith around. That's the problem. And so I want to raise a second question. Knowing all of that and agreeing with all of that theologically, is there still a place for Christian goodness? Again, Paul starts with this phrase, all have turned away, there is no one who does good, not even one. A dear friend of mine and I got into a private debate about this question recently. He argued this point, I have no hope in the church's ability to remedy even one social injustice. My only hope is in the return of the king. Please realize, this guy is not my enemy. He's a good friend. He's a good pastor. But within minutes of writing this, some of our classmates from the, the course that I was taking earlier in January responded to him online saying they were really struggling with that statement. And in a private note, I wrote to him, do you really want to say this on a day like Martin Luther King Day, that there's no hope for addressing any of the injustices of the world and that the church has no part in it? And we continued our conversation offline out of view of everybody else. Now look, my friend's argument is that Christians in the church should only be concerned about preaching the gospel and that God will one day take care of all of the rest. Let me say this fairly. There are many wonderful, wonderful Christians who believe this. They take their stand on Paul's declaration in Romans 1.16 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I believe that. But let me say this clearly too. 
I believe wholeheartedly in the gospel's power to change lives, but the salvation message is not the whole of the gospel or the whole of God's good news. Whether we agree or not, our culture has a high expectation of goodness from Christians. And Jesus announced when he began his public ministry that he had come to set the prisoners free, to make the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, that all of these injustices would begin to turn around as a result of preaching the gospel of good news. What we decide about this will in some large measure shape how effective we are in our mission whether we have a truncated mission that is only about salvation from sins or whether the coming of the kingdom of God and the goodness of God and the gospel of God begins to change us and eventually change things in this world which produces hope. So I would like to make a case for recapturing Christian goodness this morning. I'd like to talk about recapturing Christian goodness or the way of Tov the way of goodness. Here's the first part of that foundation. God is the source of true goodness. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gets into a conversation with a very rich young man who begins the conversation this way. It says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good, and he's speaking of God there. Now here, Jesus identifies God as the only one who is truly good. He implies that there is no one good thing that anyone can possibly do to inherit eternal life or to erase all of the bad things that have done or even the evil or rebellion toward God. And then Jesus steers him toward the Ten Commandments. He said, you, you know what the, the, the scriptures have taught, uh, keep the commandments. And the guy walks through the Ten Commandments and he starts to tell Jesus that he's kept all the commandments. And Jesus puts his finger on the sport, sore spot in his life. He says, okay, if you've kept all the commandments and if you've never coveted anything and greed isn't an issue, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then call, come and follow me and you will have treasures in heaven. And the guy is stunned and he walks away sad because he can't give up all those things to follow Jesus. Let me make a few observations here. Because only God is good, God is the source of true goodness. It comes from him. When God's goodness flows through us, it demonstrates his ability to free us from the controlling and addictive sins that tend to capture our hearts. While God does not call each of us to sell all we have, he does routinely command us to be generous givers and to break free from the hold that wealth can place upon us. That's just one example of where God's goodness supersedes and goes far beyond our goodness, but he's the source of true goodness. Here's the second part of that foundation. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul wrote these words, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This may sound like a very picky detail, but it's important. I often he hear people speak of the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. But the Bible actually uses the singular word fruit with several blessings that spring from it. Why is using the plural fruits a danger or a misleading thing. 
The answer is that when we see this as a list of multiple fruits, we tend to praise ourselves for having some of these virtues and exempt ourselves for not having others. In other words, the longer you and I walk in the Holy Spirit, the more that we should see evidence of all of these things in our lives. And so Paul is saying, these are the very things that begin to come from the heart the more that Christ is alive in us and the more that the Holy Spirit is working to reshape us. That in my life and in your life, we ought to see over time an abundance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So one of the primary marks of the Holy Spirit is goodness. Goodness in you. Goodness in me. Christians, then, are to be known for their goodness in a society that so frequently lacks goodness. Pastors should be known for leading people to increasing levels of goodness, which means that we have to display that in our own lives first. That means that when we look at the celebrity culture and the personality cults that surround too many high-profile pastors and ministries today, this should never be seen as a good thing. When that kind of self-promotion gets in the way of true goodness. Third, God calls us to the way of goodness. I was stunned when I read this earlier, a couple of weeks ago. Jeremiah 6.16, the prophet Jeremiah speaks, and he says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me break this down for a minute. Jeremiah was writing to the people of Israel near the time of the fall of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem had turned a blind eye to God's commands and they'd begun to, begun to worship some of the idols of the other nations around them. And so God was announcing that he would allow the Babylonian kingdom to capture and destroy Jerusalem. This all happened in 586 B.C. Even in the midst of this devastating judgment, God, though, was offering them a choice. And he drew this picture for them through the words of Jeremiah, that the people were standing at the crossroads of a huge dilemma, And God says, continue to choose the path of selfishness and idolatry and suffer, or choose the way of good, the good way, the tov way, and be blessed even as a minority culture in a foreign land. God's offer through Jeremiah fits the times that we live in today. We live in the midst of a society that in many, many ways gives lip service to God. Our society does this in a number of ways by destroying the unborn, by excusing injustices such as racial injustice, by not caring more for the poor, or by allowing businesses to be looted and burned without upholding the law over this past year. And what's interesting is that one half of our country decries some of these injustices and ignores the others that it can't see, and the other half of our country decries other injustices and still ignores the ones that they can't see. Here's God's offer to our generation and every generation. Stand at the crossroads and look. Choose which way you're going. Ask for the ancient paths. I love that. Saying not everything good is new. Ask for the ancient paths. There's ancient wisdom to be found in God's God's word. Ask where the good way is and walk in that way. So the Bible is telling us to walk in the good way, the good path. 
And here's the promise. And this sounds so like Jesus. And you will find rest for your souls. Remember what he said? My, my burden is light. And it leads to rest for the soul. Here's the main idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. The church will reclaim its blessing and favor as we restore and return to the way of goodness. Here's the fourth part of that foundation. We were created for the way of goodness. Look at what, where we've gone here in the last couple of minutes. God is the source of true goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. God calls us now to the way of goodness. And we were created for the way of goodness. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In context, Ephesians 2.10 follows some of the clearest teaching about salvation by grace in the two verses just prior to this, where Paul wrote that we are only saved by grace, God's unmerited, undeserved gift that we cannot work for. And our salvation is never accomplished by our own efforts, by our own works. We can never pat ourselves on the back and say, I did it my way with Frank Sinatra. However, verse 10 clearly stated that we were created for good works. In other words, part of the reason that you and I are still here and we're not instantly brought up to heaven is that God has a purpose for us living on this earth right now for every Christ follower. And we were created in Christ in order to continue God's work of doing good within this, wor within this world in his name. Paul employs a unique pairing of concepts here. First, he says, we are his handiwork, or an older translation says, we are his workmanship. It's a term that speaks of the craftsmanship of a true artist, that what God is doing in your life and what he's doing in my life, after he chisels away all the junk that doesn't belong there, is he's creating a masterpiece, a, a, a product of his own handiwork, his own artisanship. That's what your life is going to be like at the very end. And as this is all displayed to the world to look on and see the work of God in us as we become more and more like Jesus. So God is at work reshaping our lives, our hearts, our minds. And each of us is a masterpiece in the making where he is the sculptor. And then the second part of this unique pairing is that God saves us and shapes us to do the good work that he prepares for us to do. We must always hold this tension in order to fully understand the gospel. The good news is that his redemptive work is always an act of God's free grace, but experiencing that grace immediately propels us into doing the good work of God in the world. Paul even puts an eternal bow on this and says that they were prepared in advance for us to do. And then the last part of this foundation is that God blesses when we choose the way of goodness as our way of life. So I started with the New Living Translation's version of the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. God blesses those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, for they will receive it in full. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus, the deliverer of this message, is the ultimate role model for this way of goodness, for the way of tov. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to an alternative lifestyle. It is the way of blessing. It is the way of goodness. It is neither the way of the right or the way of the left because neither one of us gets it perfectly. It's the way of Jesus. This was Jesus' way of calling us to create a culture of goodness starting here in our midst as we gather together. Now, I have to tell you that some of the ideas and the passion that I'm describing this with this morning comes from a deep dive into a book recently written by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, a book that is called A Church Called Tov. In the wake of the harm done by some of America's leading churches to their people, McKnight, who is a brilliant New Testament theologian from Northern Seminary in Chicago, has been asking this question, what has gone wrong? What's happened to the goodness that's supposed to be produced from the people of God and from the church of God? His conclusion that is in the pursuit of dynamic growth that too often the church has emulated the excesses of the corporate world instead of emulating the way of Jesus. Now, he's not saying that there aren't things that we can't learn from the, from the business world, that there aren't ways that we can do management or leadership better, but he is saying there are some things from the corporate world that are absolutely antithetical to the goodness of God in the way we treat people. Here are some of the marks of a goodness culture. Nurturing empathy as we deal with other people and the challenges and the hurts and the pains of life are expressed. Nurturing grace, grace giving and grace receiving among among each other. Putting people first, not necessarily processes. Telling the truth and resisting false narratives. We live in an age of such marketing and such impression shaping. Telling the truth gets lost. Nurturing justice, where people get fair treatment, all people. Nurturing service, rather than celebrating those who seem to rise above the rest of us. Nurturing Christ-likeness. In choosing to nurture each of these biblical values, There's a dark side that we must resist, and that will have to come for another day because I'm thinking of turning just that last segment into another series that we follow up on about how we nurture this concept of goodness long-term in the family of God through the church. But here's the main idea. The church will reclaim its blessing and favor in the world as we restore and return to the way of goodness. Folks, the idea of goodness gets a bad rap in our day. And I want to tell you that Jesus restores to us this call to the way of goodness. I wonder if you would be willing to pray this closing prayer with me as we take some of the thoughts that I have just presented to you and we present this back to the Lord in prayer. So here in the room and at home, I would love it if you would just read this out loud and let this engage your mind. Lord, only you are truly good. Left to ourselves, we are not. Help us to follow Jesus as our leader and role model for goodness. 
Let us be filled with your Holy Spirit who produces goodness in us. Let us pursue goodness in the church, goodness in the home, and goodness in the community around us. Let goodness be the fruit of your Spirit in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. God, and I ask that you would allow this spirit of goodness to flow from the heart of Jesus into the way that we think, into the way that we treat each other, in the way that, into the way that we respond to our neighbors and our coworkers in the midst of a world that is struggling and longing to find signs of true goodness. Thank you for allowing us to deliver today not just some good news, but the best good news through Jesus our Lord. Amen.